Thank you for listening to the Crossridge Podcast. For more information about Crossridge Church, visit our social medias or go to our website at crclife.org. We hope you enjoy the message. Well, um, thank you, Al, for that incredible (laughs) introduction. I'm going to take you with me to my class uh, tomorrow morning. Uh, Maybe they'll believe that, too, so... Uh, anyway, thank you very much. My name is Ron Littleton. If you don't have, don't know who I am, I, uh, like Al said, I teach a class at Legacy Christian Academy called Apologetics, and Apologetics is basically this. It's uh, uh, telling people why we believe what we believe. And so what we believe, most people can, can tell uh, that, but why do we believe it? And uh, people ask me all the time, uh, why are you a Christian? And uh, I always answer it this way. I'm a Christian, and the reason I believe Christianity is because it's true. And the reason I'm a Christian is because Christianity really is true. If it wasn't true, I wouldn't be a Christian. Um, and there would be no, no reason to believe. And so apologetics basically is the idea of finding reasons are knowing reasons that you believe what you do believe. And so uh, today, uh, rather than teach a high school class, which is a blessing not to, to do that today, so uh, as much as I enjoy being around high school students, I coached football for, for a long time, and uh, that was a lot of fun. As a matter of fact, uh, one of my good friends who has been my athletic director for a long time is here, and uh, Lynn Dupree uh, is uh, a dear friend, and uh, we, we go back a long way in uh, our athletic days. Uh, and all of that, all of it works together, because whether you're te- coaching football, you're teaching class, or you're at church, um, it all revolves around whether or not what we believe really is true. And so, uh, at, right as I get started, let me... Uh, we just came through Thanksgiving and eat, eating too much, which we all did, I'm sure, um, and we're thankful for that, you know. But uh, last week, Pastor Mark uh, preached on giving thanks, and uh, if I can, if I can uh, review that real quickly for you, and then it'll it'll carry into what we're doing today. And he said the ingredient for for th- thriving relationships is thankfulness. And then he said there are two actions, two action steps. The first one is give thanks to God. In other words, acknowledge that the Lord really is God. We thank God for uh, creating us in his image. Um, is what the ancients would call the Imago Dei, created in his image. We thank God for saving us by his grace. We, we don't deserve it. He saves us by His grace uh, through the shed blood of His uh, Son. We thank God for His faithfulness to us. And then we give thanks to God for our relationships. The what, Pastor reminded us, is to give thanks. The when, do we give thanks in everything. Not necessarily for everything, but in everything. The how is we do it by God's power. The why, it's God's will for us. Why is it his will for us? Because it is best for us. And so pastor taught us how to, uh, how to uh, give thanks. So we've just gone through this uh, Thanksgiving uh, season, and we thank Pastor Mark for reminding us last week uh, to always be thankful in anything. And so it brings me today, um, we go through from Thanksgiving, and most people realize that the day after Thanksgiving is Black Friday or whatever they call it, and uh, so you're going out, and so everybody's got Christmas on mind, and buying things and doing things and all the things that are there. And so rather than just talking about uh, Christianity, or, or excuse me, Christmas, I want to look at it this way. And the, uh, the title that I've given this is Anticipating a Baby. 
anticipating a baby. And I, I thought about say, using the, the phrase expecting a baby, but then I realized, uh, can any man really know what it means to be expecting a baby? Can we? So I'll say anticipating instead of um, expecting. Um, so uh, my wife and I were, were so thankful uh, uh, a couple of months ago when Pastor uh, mentioned that uh, Mallory and Kobe McCormick and Kyle and Rachel Stone were going to be uh, uh, leading our youth group for us. And we were just so excited because um, it was something that uh, was close to our hearts, especially with Kyle and Rachel. When uh, a couple of, about a year or two ago, we were doing some things on Wednesday night. And one of the things we were doing was that uh, Pastor had older couples talking to younger couples about how you can remain couples even when you're older couples, if that makes any sense. And so uh, we, got to, we got to know Kyle and Rachel as they were in our group, and, uh, and it was so much fun getting to know them. And then after we got to know them a little bit more, we realized this, we had a whole lot in common. Uh, uh, Rachel's uh, mom and dad went to the same college that I went to in Chattanooga, Tennessee, Tennessee Temple University, and they were there at the same time I was there, and I remember them, her dad being a baseball player, her mom being a cheerleader, and uh, so it was so exciting to see that, and then uh, a couple of months ago, uh, they went on their vacation, and they went through the old, the old university where we were, and they, they sent pictures to us, and it was just ex exciting. And then one of the things that uh, my wife began praying with Rachel is that uh, they had, at the time, they had two boys. And she was just looking forward to having this, uh, the next baby was going to be a girl, and it was. And uh, so she, when she was expecting um, the, the baby girl, it was exciting. And then, of course, now they've had the girl. Now they're getting ready for another one. And I think that one's going to be another boy. So I think it's really, really cool. Um, so I call this anticipating a baby. Anticipating a baby. And uh, see if I can make all this work. Is this right? Whoops. I think I did it wrong. Oh, there we go. So can you remember... Can you really remember, if you can look back, can you remember uh, what it was like uh, anticipating the birth of a baby? And uh, ours was, uh, our firstborn, Michelle, was, um, it got real, where it was really kind of, uh, I guess you could say, nerve-wracking there at the last. And so uh, my wife went in for one of her regular checkups, and uh, we were still in college, and she goes in, and then she calls me and says, well, uh, something's going on, and they're going to induce labor today, and we're going to get ready to have a baby. And then it just got real wild and crazy. And, uh, and so we, we ended up having our baby, uh, little Michelle. She was real, real small. She was a little over four pounds, and, uh, but just lively and wonderful. And uh, so when I think about anticipating what a baby is, uh, or having a baby, looking at it. And so I take, take this as my, uh, my uh, text this morning to, to start off would be this. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And this is something that I want you to keep in your mind. That is, we're looking at anticipating the baby. And it said, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Rejoice, favored woman. Now notice this, she's favored by God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be favored by God? Well, does it mean that everything's going to work out exactly like you think it is? 
Is it going to be everything's just going to be perfect from that moment on? And remember, the angel come and said, rejoice, favored woman. For me, it's hard to realize that anything could be going, um, anything that could be going through Mary's thoughts at this time. Now, my mom loved Christmas, and she loved the Christmas times, and uh, she and my wife were very, very close. And my mom loved the, uh, the old uh, hymn, Silent Night. Remember? And she would sing it, and she would sit there, and she would sing it, and she would just start crying. You know, and I'd, I'd say, Mom, what? it's Christmas. Why are you crying? And she goes, I'm just thinking about Mary. Just thinking about Mary. What was going through her mind? And so when I think about that, and I think about Silent Night, Holy Night, and uh, we kind of look at it, and we kind of think of it, and we look at it from, from the point of view that everything's going to turn out just right. Everything's going to be wonderful, you know, especially for Mary. But if you remember, just remember what, what really is going on. We'll come back to Mary in just a, a little bit. So I'm going to give different perspectives of this, different perspectives, and I'm going to look at this this way. The different perspectives is we're going to look at dad's viewpoint. Dad's viewpoint, completely different, I know, than mom's viewpoint. And so from dad, for me, it's this idea of going from boy to man, going from boy to man. Growing up as a little boy thinking, you know, girls had cooties. You're not going to do anything with girls ever again, you know. And then all of a sudden something changes. And so going from boy to man. And then we go from a, I went from a single man, or still a boy, I guess, uh, to husband. Now, when I realized, and, and I did this pretty quickly when I first saw my wife singing in church. And I mentioned to a friend of mine, I said, that's the kind of girl that, that I want to marry. And he, he laughed and said, you can't get a date. You know, what, what do you mean? And I said, no, that's, that's really it. The next time I saw her, you know, the thought went through my mind, what would it take to marry her? You know, what would it be? And uh, so uh, we, we dated, uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't a long date, it wasn't a long courtship, and it was quick. And it was wonderful. And I remember meeting her dad. I had to go talk to her dad and ask if I could marry his daughter, his young, youngest daughter. And so I went to him and I said, um, I'm here to ask if I could marry your daughter. And he was a great, wise man, wonderful man, loved him very much. And uh, he looked at me and he said, you got to make a promise to me. And the promise was this. He said, so I, I thought, you know, what's this going to be? Am I going to be able to do this? He said, you have to promise that no matter what, that you're always going to provide her a place to stay that she can call her own and that it will be safe and she will feel safe there and you're going to provide for her. He said, can you promise that? And I had to think for a little bit, and I said, yeah, I, think I, could, I can promise that. I'll make that promise. And I'm, I'm here to say my wife would, would, would uh, verify this, but I've kept that promise. Even though he's in heaven now, I'm still keeping that promise that I made to him. And so, uh, so we go from single man, or still maybe a boy, to a husband, and then we go from a husband uh, to a father. And uh, what, what a wonderful thing that was. What a wonderful thing of, of having our firstborn child, our, our little Michelle, and having her. And then, what am I going to do now? I've got, I've got this little girl. What am I going to do now? And then we come, come to mom's view. Come to mom's view. And I probably should have asked her about this, but... Uh, but anyway, so she, you go from, from girl to woman, or really lady, and the way I say it this way is beauty personified. And what I mean by that is godliness that is evident. 
And so I call it beauty personified or godliness evidenced. And then she goes from woman to wife. And as wife, she is the perfect helper. All the way through, been the perfect helper. Um, when we first got married, and uh, we'd been married maybe a week or so, and uh, we, we were back in Tennessee. I was still in college, and uh, we had a little duplex, small, small little place. And in that little duplex, uh, I, worked, I worked the third shift at the time. And so here I'm going to go to work for the first time. You're going to be home all by yourself all night long. <laughs> uh, and so the whole thing, and so she cooked dinner for us. We made, got dinner, we ate, and uh, I, made this, I made this comment. And I said, I'll wash dishes because you washed them last night. I thought, man, I'm the greatest husband in the world. <laughs> I'll wash dishes tonight, you know. And she said, wait a minute. Now, we're, we were young. I mean, she was still 18 when we got married. But she had so much godliness. And she knew what it was to be a godly wife. And uh, she said this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wash dishes. And she kind of pushed me out of the way. And she said, we're not keeping score. We're not keeping score. Remember, she's 18. And it's, it was something that made the biggest impact on me. Now, I would, hear, I would say this. If we were keeping score, you know, I am a football coach. So an old football coach, looking back, and, you know, you, you like to keep score and you like to win. But I would say if I was keeping score... I think I'd be real far behind. And so uh, it's something that she taught me. And she taught me what it was really to have that godliness where you're thinking and what real marriage really is. And then she went from, uh, from woman to wife, the perfect help, help, helper. She went from wife to mother. And then she became that perfect example. Uh, not only to the kids, as I've said, but also to me. And then as, we, uh, as, as the kids grew and as things go on and we're looking at these different perspectives, then we have grandmother's view. Now, grandmother's view is a lot different from what I've seen than mother's view was. And so as I look at this, as she's gone from wife to mother, then she went from mother to Mimi, or I like to say this, protector and protector of the grandkids. And uh, so here she is, this protector and, uh, of the grandkids. And when our first granddaughter was born, uh, uh, it was um, pretty amazing what happened. And uh, I'll get into it a little bit later. But uh, she was born um, premature and we had a lot to do with that, um, had a lot of things that we had to do for that. And uh, she was the, the perfect protector with the grandkids. And then she went from just protector to mentor to teacher of how she's teaching her daughters how to be moms through being a grandmother. And it was incredible. Now we come to grandpa's view, come to granddad's view. They call me Papa. So I've gone from dad to fear, and the fear is this. Can my daughter really do this? Is she really doing that? Then go from fear to amazement, and then they begin to call me Papa, which I love. Then from amazement to joy, and then we know this, that grandkids are perfect, especially when they're spoiled. You know, they are perfect. And uh, my view of that, and I told my, both of my daughters that my view of why grandkids are so perfect is because perfection skips a generation. Uh, <clears throat> so that's my, my view on that. Obviously, I can't back that up scripturally, but, but it is, makes a good story. And then uh, we go to the great-grandparents' view. And we're going to be great-grandparents here pretty soon. I think we already are. Uh, and our little Brittany, 
Uh, and I use this, and I talk about the blessing and the thorn. And uh, we ask ourselves this, and I'll talk about the blessing and the thorn in a little, little while. But where did the days go? Where did the days go? Could, could I really be this old now? Then we have memories and pictures. And my wife is the great one for, for the pictures. And then we, we stand and we're thankful to our Savior for everything we've seen, for everything we've gone through. And remember, we're talking about anticipating a baby. And we are anticipating a great-grandbaby. And, uh, but we have to go, go back a little bit for when Brittany, our oldest granddaughter, was born, and she was born prematurely. And uh, she was about the size of my hand when she was born. She was in the NICU for, I think, 12 weeks. And uh, she was born in Houston. We were living in uh, Dallas, and we'd drive back and forth. And Kathy would go all the time, back and forth, back and forth. And we were watching and, Lord, praying. And every time we would go, it would be in my mind. I would be under such stress, wondering what's, what's happening. Is this, is this child going to make it? What, it? It was just so much stress. So much stress. And there was a song that we would play. And the name of the song was The Blessing and the Thorn. And The Blessing and the Thorn. And it, it went like this. I read about a man of God who gloried in his weakness. And I wish that I could be more like him and less like me. Am I to blame for what I'm not? Or is pain the way God teaches me to grow? I need to know. And when does the thorn become a blessing? When does the pain become a friend? When does my weakness make me stronger? And when does my faith make me whole again? I want to feel his arms around me in the middle of my raging storm so that I can see the blessing in the thorn. And so with that and thinking about that, it takes me back to Mary. And it takes me to Mary and Joseph. And it brings me to this. Going to this viewpoint, going to Joseph's viewpoint. Now, he's going from anticipation. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. He's engaged to Mary. And he's got, got all this. And in, in the uh, Jewish economy, one of the things that he would have to do, he would have to prepare a place for her. He would have to build a place for her to live. Just like my father-in-law told me. You've got to have a place. She's got to have a place. And so, in that. And so I think about Joseph's viewpoint. Now remember, remember this. Here's, here's one of the things he finds out. She's what? Think about this. She's what? How, how can this be? Mary? That godly lady? Then he would say this. The baby's not mine. And all that's true. The baby's not mine. And I'm sure his thought, uh, we know it is, that he says, I can get a divorce. And after all, she has been unfaithful to me. And I think of Joseph and I think about that and think about what pain that must have been. And then he comes to this decision, though. Let's not make this public. I don't want to put her through that. And I say this. I say patience and love marked him. Patience and love marked him. And here's one thing we can understand. Is that he was a trained carpenter. And he was obedient to God. Matthew 13, 55 says this. They look at Jesus and they say, isn't this the carpenter's son, this man who is teaching? And then this, in John 14, 1 through 6, and most of you probably can quote it. Remember, Jesus is there with his disciples and he's getting ready. He's getting ready. Uh, 
Jesus is getting ready at the Last Supper and he's, he's going to go to the cross. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to be arrested that night. And in John chapter 14, Jesus says, uh, um, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Now notice what he's saying. He's realizing what the carpenter's job is to build. And what's he doing? He says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And so we know that he was responsible for his son's training because he realizes what a carpenter does. And then it brings us to Mary. Mary's experience from respected to reputation. She must have been a great example. She must have been someone of highest caliber, of highest character. She had to have been, to have been chosen by the Father to have our Lord and Savior. Luke chapter 1, it says this, The virgin is with child. And she replies this, How can this be? I have not been intimate with a man. How can this be that I'm going to have a baby? I've not done anything to have a baby. How can it be? In John chapter 8, now think about Mary, how it would have been from that point on. She's accused of sexual immorality in John chapter 8. Jesus is teaching and they're looking at him. And they, they, the Pharisees look at Jesus and say this to him. It's one of those things, you know you can't win an argument, so what do you do? you got to go at the person. Well, they say, well, well, we weren't born out of fornication like you were. You're an illegitimate son. And that's the accusing part that they're saying. And so it was known, it was known that Mary, when she became pregnant with uh, Jesus, that she was not married. And think about that. She's young, uh, probably younger than most people would think. She's young. She tried to figure it out, but she just, it, it just doesn't make sense, does it? Why is she going to go through this? And not just through this at this time, but it's going to be even when her son Jesus is older, they're going to bring it up. They're going to continue to bring it up. And then it's her first baby. What's going to happen next? Then we see Mary's obedience to God the Father. Obedience is always the very best way, isn't it? Obedience. Sometimes it's so hard for us to be obedient, to understand that we just follow and do what's right, and it becomes the easiest way. And then I like to look at this way, that Mary had great trust. She had great trust in Joseph. She had great trust in him. And, uh, and then he raised her son, Jesus. And then Mary as mom to other children. I think a lot of times we, we forget about this. But in Mark chapter 6, verse 3, Jesus' brothers are mentioned as uh, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. Mary would then watch her son die on the cross in John chapter 19. It's a touching and horrific scene. From his conception, she understood he was different. But could she have anticipated this? Did she realize that that perfect Lamb of God would become the sacrifice? What was it like when she's sitting there, standing there at the cross, 
And she's there with John. And Jesus says, behold, mother. And then it's so touching, but it's a horrific scene. From his conception, she understood he was different. But could she anticipate this horrible scene? And then it brings us to this. It brings us from the content to conversation. This takes us uh, from content to conversation, and it demands our attention. It commands us to tell others about him. And it brings us to Colossians chapter 4. And Paul said this. Paul said, devote yourselves to prayer. Then he said this, stay alert with thanksgiving. As we just come through the thanksgiving time, He's telling us to stay alert, but stay alert with thanksgiving. Devote yourself to prayer. Hard thing to do. Prayer is probably the most, uh, 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 or a way to enter into the omnipotence of God, all the power of God. We, we enter into that with him through prayer. And it's the most powerful thing we can do, and yet it seems the most hard thing to do, doesn't it? So we stay alert in it with thanksgiving. And Paul says at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to us for the message to speak the mystery of the Messiah for which I am in prison. And Paul's talking about this, obviously writing from, um, from Rome, and he's telling, uh, telling the people at uh, Colossae that here I am, I'm, I'm this, but I want you to remember Continue to speak of the mystery of the Messiah, the, the Savior. And then he said, so that I may reveal it as I'm required to speak. Know the content. And one of the things that we need to know that as Christians is that we need to be familiar with the content. Now, as I teach apologetics, one of the things that is uh, becoming more and more difficult through the years, is for people to actually know the content of the Bible. That they don't really know what the Bible actually says. Uh, they've got ideas about what the Bible says, but to actually know what it says is something else. And so we need to know the content. And then uh, we need to act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of time. And it's... Uh, this is important because Jesus models this. He models this in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22, and I'll not read the whole thing to you, but he comes across the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, remember, you know, you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees that come after uh, Jesus all the time. And of course, um, the way to remember this is that the Pharisees believed in a, in a, a, a resurrection at the end of time. The Sadducees didn't believe in a physical resurrection. They didn't believe that. They, they believed it might be spiritual, it might be something else, but who would want to have this body again? That was their argument. Why would we want to be raised from the dead with a body like this? One that hurts, one that all these things. And that's what, what their idea was. So they were trying to catch Jesus. They're trying to catch Jesus in, uh, in an argument. And they're saying, why would, why would you believe in the resurrection? They're, they're asking Jesus. And then they come across and they say, let's give you a, a what if. Now, as a teacher, I get what if questions all the time. Okay? All the time. What if? Uh, and, and it's all the way through. What if? And I, and I always say, you can ask me any question, just don't start it with what if. Okay? Because we can what if all the way through. But this is what they do with Jesus. Now, what this is called, it's called an ad absurdum argument. And it just means this. They're going to give him an absurd, ridiculous uh, scenario, and then they're going to say, now, solve it. And it's an amazing, it's an amazing uh, situation that Jesus is in here. And so they, they come to this part, and uh, they give this scenario. They say, so... Uh, and they, they go back all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 5, and they're citing an old law. 
And they look at Jesus and say, okay, well, you know the law. And they say, suppose a, Mary, a, 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 a lady gets married and she marries a man and the husband dies before she has children. And she said, they said, by law, she could marry one of the other brothers. And so if another brother hadn't been married, so she, she, she marries brother number two. And he dies. And as he dies, and then uh, she still doesn't have any children. So the law says the next brother, brother number three, brother number four. I, I think by this time, if I was a brother, I'd leave, you know. Uh, then brother number five, all the way to brother number seven. And they say, they give him this, they give Jesus this incredible scenario. And they say, so, uh, so when she gets into the kingdom, when she finally gets into the kingdom, who's going to be her husband? Gotcha. We gotcha. And Jesus looks at him and says, uh, don't you know? Don't you know the answer to this? Are y'all really that foolish? And he says, don't you know that in the kingdom there is neither marriage nor giving in marriage? There's no need for marriage in the kingdom. And he has to remind them. You remember, what's the purpose of marriage? God gave us the purpose of marriage to replenish the earth, to populate and replenish the earth. In the kingdom, are we going to need to do that? And the answer is no. And so the idea of this, that there's no marriage, and he puts them in their place. And he's, you see this, that he, uh, he acts wisely, uh, and he makes it. Uh, and so he knows the content. And he makes, acts wisely toward the outsiders. And then uh, Paul says, Your speech should always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. Now this is interesting <clears throat> because when, when I'm teaching apologetics, this is the number one thing of apologetics, is to be able to give answers. And so Paul is admonishing us to know the content so well that we should be able to know how to answer each person. And that's a difficult thing to do because, you know, who can answer all the questions? But it, but it, it begs us to, to be in Scripture, to know the Scriptures, and to search them, and to be able to tell the why. <clears throat> and so we see Jesus as the, our ideal example um, from that. So we come to this. We come to this. So what is the content? So what is the content for our lives as we anticipate the baby? Well, I think we need to remember this, that it starts with a mother and her baby. It seems helpless at the cross. Think about this. It seems helpless at the cross, but it appears hopeless at the tent tomb. So Jesus is buried. He's dead. He's, he's in the tomb. But aren't you glad that that's not the end of the story? Aren't you glad that that's not the end of the story? So the conversation then, we must remember, starts with the birth of a baby. But it doesn't end there. The birth of the baby, as we're anticipating Christmas, and here we are anticipating it and looking forward to it. And, and I love the time. And it's one of the most important times um, that we have. And we've just gone through Thanksgiving. We had, a, uh, as a teacher, I have a week off. Then we had three more weeks of school, then Christmas break, you know, which is really good. But that's not what I mean by anticipating Christmas. Uh, the conversation then starts with the birth of a baby, but it propels us to a brutal Roman crucifixion. It propels us to this brutal Roman crucifixion. Paul states the goal plainly. But I wish some days that Paul had made it a lot easier. You know, um, Paul tells us this in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, Paul says this. He says, my goal is to know him 
and the power of his resurrection. And I wish it had stopped right there. I mean, that would be great, wouldn't it? My goal is to know him, to know Christ, and to know the power of his resurrection. But then Paul goes on further and he says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Then he says this, being conformed to his death. And so uh, the cross doesn't only command us to, to see Jesus, but it's this. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And that's a hard prayer to pray, to fellowship in the suffering of Christ. And yet that's one of the things that we are called to do. And then Jesus calls us, he calls us to follow me. It's not easy. Nothing in this story is easy. He did not intend it to be easy. But the cross leads us to the resurrection. So if you have something to write with, if you have something to write with, write down the word death up and down. Just write the word death up and down. So here's the school teacher coming out in me. <clears throat> so death. Now I'm going to give you five facts and we'll end with these five facts. But we're going to give you five facts that we know for sure. That we can look at it from a historical point of view. We can look at it from history and we can say that these five things that we know that these are true about Jesus. And number one, number one is we know that Jesus was dead and buried. So dead and buried. So how do we know Jesus really did die? How do we know? Well, we know this. We know that, uh, that he was crucified. And we know, we know Roman, the, the Roman soldiers were expert at, experts at killing people. And so as historians look at this, and they look at the story, and they look at it all the way through the lens of looking at even what the Bible says, even though a person may not believe everything in the Bible, they realize this from a history point of view, that the Bible gives us this incredible history of the life and death and burial and even the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, just from a historical point of view. And so one of the facts that we know is that Jesus really did die on a cross, and he really was buried, buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. And then we come to E. E is empty tomb, the empty tomb, empty. One of the things we know that three days later that the tomb was discovered to be empty. Now, there are a lot of reasons people give for this. And it doesn't mean that if the tomb is empty that you have to actually believe Jesus rose from the dead. Some people say maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Maybe they did this. Maybe they did that. Maybe, maybe the body was stolen. It was one of the first things that was uh, argued. Um, the Romans argued that, that uh, the disciples came and stole the body at night while the guards were asleep. Kind of a ridiculous story that they make up, but that's their story. That, that, but what they're verifying, just from the enemies of Christ, are verifying that on that Sunday morning, that the tomb really was empty. And I think it's an amazing thing for us to be able to see that just from a historical point of view, we know that Jesus really did die on a cross. He really was buried in Joseph Arimathea's tomb. And then when the tomb, three days later, was found empty. And then A is the appearances of Christ. The appearances of Christ. That after Jesus rose from the dead, he was seen by many, many, many people. Not just, not just his disciples, but many people. So much so that in the book of Acts chapter 6, we learn that even many of the people who were against Christ, many of the Pharisees who were non-believers, after they had seen Jesus risen from the dead, became believers. And so we know from a historical standpoint that the appearances of Christ were many. And it wasn't just that Jesus, you know, rose from the dead 
and he's running around playing peekaboo with everybody. And here I am. Nope. Did you see me? Here I am. That's not it. He's walking around teaching and preaching just like he did before before his crucifixion. And people are seeing him. They're talking with him. He eats with them. He talks uh, to many people in crowds, uh, over 500 people at once. And so we know the appearances of Christ are real. Then it takes us to probably one of the strongest pieces of evidence. It's the T. It's the transformation of the disciples. The transformation of the disciples. They are transformed from these scaredy cats to these powerful witnesses of Christ. Do you remember Peter? Peter denies Christ not once, not twice, but three times. And yet he's willing to die. And in one of the most beautiful passages in John, uh, Jesus is with Peter and he asks him the question three times. He says, Peter, do you love me? Now, how are you going to answer that question to Jesus? After you've, after you've denied him three times, you, were, you know, Jesus told him you're going to deny me. How do, you, how do you answer that question when Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Now, I don't know, I don't know about you, but my mom was real good that after I'd disobey her, she would, that's the question she would say, don't you even love me? Well, how do you answer that? You know? Well, yeah, I'd love you, mom. But, but I didn't obey you, you know. And so here they're asking, asking uh, Peter, do you love me? And he asked him three times. And each time, Peter just shakes his head. Yeah, Lord, I love you, but, you know, how can I prove it? And then remember the third time when Jesus, uh, when Jesus asked him, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord. And he's very depressed. You can tell he's just, you know, wow. And then Jesus tells him something. And John reports it like this. He said, Jesus told him that he would be lifted up with his arms outstretched. And John, uh, John says, and he told Peter this to let him know what kind of death he would die. Now think about Peter's motivation. We know Peter changed, preaches. He preaches at Pentecost. Uh, Acts chapter 2. He preaches on the day of Pentecost. He preaches a powerful sermon to the same people that he denied Christ to. And he preaches. And we know this. And we know that Peter actually dies on a cross. And think about, about that. That his motivation, his motivation is not is not that, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, even though that's true. But his motivation was this. You're going to die the same death I did. The thing that he was scared of the most, the thing he was scared of the most, he's going to, he's going to enter into that with Christ. He's going to die on a cross. And he dies about the year 67. And so... If we, we think about that, now you, you think when Peter goes, uh, goes into the uh, Sanhedrin and, he's, and he's, he's preaching and the same people that, are, that had put Jesus to death and he goes in and he's telling them and he preaches from the book of Joel and he's talking about all these things and said, that this Jesus whom you crucified. Now I just know that he thinks and he does, he gets brought in and I just know that he thinks he's going to die then. But he wasn't scared anymore. Why was he not scared? Because he knew resurrection was real. And so we look at those appearances of Christ and the transformation of the disciples. T was transformation of the disciples. And then H. H is the horrific conditions for the rise of Christianity. Horrific conditions for the rise of Christianity. Now, how does, how does Christianity get started? Well, you think about it. It starts because of the resurrection. You got all these guys, these followers, and you got these people that are there. And uh, on, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches, and there are people that are there that have, know all these things that are going on. And they see it, and they realize that this is going on. All these things that are happening, 
And uh, uh, Peter preaches and over 3,000 are saved. And then Peter, as he gets arrested and gets brought in, I'm sure he thinks this is it. This is where it's going to happen. But it doesn't. Uh, And then Peter goes on and, of course, becomes one of the leaders of the church. And so we have no hope unless Jesus really did rise from the grave. We have no hope unless Jesus really rose from the grave. And so as we look at this, I want to remind you what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. He says, my goal, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And that's the call for us. The call for us is that we may know him, the power of his resurrection being made conformed to his death. Now, think about Think about what Paul is actually saying. Paul is actually telling us that when we know Christ and we know him and his power, then we fellowship in his suffering. And so when I think about this, it brings me all the way back to when our granddaughter was born, all the way back to then. And we talked about the blessing and the thorn. And in the blessing and the thorn, as we were going back and forth uh, to see my granddaughter, little bitty granddaughter, she made it through and then now uh, she married a godly man, a, past, uh, a youth pastor. Uh, she's godly. She's 23 years old. She's going to have our great-grandchild in, uh, in about a month. And so the blessing in the thorn, and it's what, what we see when we anticipate what's going on. Well, let's pray, ask the Lord's blessing on today, and let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us, and Lord, we thank you for um, this congregation. Lord, we thank you for, for a church that preaches the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, uh, be with us now and those who may need to come forward and pray, uh, those who uh, may need to talk to uh, one of the pastors. Lord, we ask that you would um, be with this time of invitation. We thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.